0: This episode is part one of our four-part series leading up to the launch of my new book. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you
1: by Workman Forensics.
0: Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter. CEO and founder of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Today I have with me one of the team members again. I have Rachel Organist. She's our senior data analyst. Originally trained as a geologist, Rachel obtained a Bachelor of Science from the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a Master of Science from Penn State University. When her work in the oil and gas industry didn't provide the career satisfaction she was looking for, she researched other fields and found forensic accounting to be the perfect place to apply her analytical skills. In her work with Workman Forensics, Rachel uses her expertise in scientific reasoning as well as her aptitude for identifying, collecting, and synthesizing data to undertake financial investigations. As of 2021, Rachel is an official certified fraud examiner. So thanks so much for joining me today, Rachel. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, and talk with me about risk-based analysis, at, at least as part of the data sleuth process. I do want to add that clarification. So really excited about this. And I think we should just Jump in. Are you ready? Sounds good. Okay. So, what is the purpose of a risk-based analysis in a fraud investigation or forensic accounting engagement, and specifically as it relates to our data sleuth process?
1: So, kind of one of the biggest benefits uh, in doing risk-based analysis is that you're going to prioritize your resources because um, even our our big budget clients, you know, they don't want to be just spending money on us going down uh, rabbit trails as we sometimes call them or getting really in the weeds. Um, so risk-based analysis is gonna help you prioritize prioritize your resources to the highest risk areas. And then kind of along those same lines, it helps with not getting on that uh, path of diminishing returns as you really try to quantify every dollar of the loss because um, especially with most of our clients, their goals and kind of what the final outcome is gonna be if you're gonna get some kind of restitution, the subject is probably not going to be able to pay that all back anyway. So if we just focus on the the meat and potatoes of that particular case, where we think the highest risk of fraud is, that's probably the best use of our time and the client's money.
0: Yeah, so we're gonna we'll get a little bit more into like the practical application of this, but in a risk based analysis. And and now that you're a CFE, um, so congratulations that happens last year, right? End of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you're a CFE, you've probably seen the charts like I have that maybe provide like a fraud risk assessment for an entire organization, but a risk-based analysis in the way that we use it as part of the data sleuth process is really more of a, like you said, a prioritization, but it's the prioritization of the risk of fraud in the case that we're looking at. So like the biggest bang for somebody's buck essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a narrower view overall. Another thing I was just thinking about too, is that when we say risk-based analysis, sometimes we kind of mean, or we can mean one of two different things. One is this kind of case planning, a uh, big case picture version of risk-based analysis that we're talking about. And then another way that I kind of think of it is, um, looking at it on almost an individual transaction basis, which transactions are highest risk once you're really in the weeds of the analysis. And so I know we're going to talk about that in a subsequent episode, but that's kind of another way that we uh, focus on risk when we're working with clients.
0: So when we say risk, what are we talking about?
1: So basically, and I think we'll probably get more into what exactly this looks like in our cases and in fraud later in the episode, but um, I kind of think of opportunity as maybe a key component of risk, you know, where, were there, where did the subject have? Cause typically there's a subject that we're looking at. Um, where would they have had opportunities to divert funds? Essentially, that's it divert funds, you know, whether they were coming into your entity or going out, um, Risk is kind of going to correlate with opportunity, I guess I'd say.
0: So in larger organizations formalize like enterprise risk management, right? So they're identifying all of these vulnerabilities to some sort of something that would be negative negatively impacting for the company. Mm -hmm. So that could be more in like the soft skills area, like maybe publicity or social media or their position on something and how the public's going to view that. But then it could also be where could someone steal from them or misrepresent, you know, I'm thinking of Enron, but like misrepresent how they're handling their numbers that would ultimately... Cause the whole thing to come crashing down. You know, so there's like, and I'm kind of overwhelmed, I'll to be honest with uh, enterprise risk management. So whenever we're talking about risk in this context, it's nothing that big. Like that's right. not, we're, we're not covering all risk within an organization. It's really what you said. Where... Are the opportunities that someone could divert funds for their own personal benefit?
1: And it sounds so simple when you put it like that. Or it's—I mean—that's really all we're looking for. There's a lot that that can you know look like, and a lot that goes into that. But I think that's definitely a little bit more or uh, uh, easier to digest way to sum up what we do.
0: Right. I, I even struggled with when I was writing the book, like how do I define this and make it simple? Because a risk-based analysis is what we're doing to kind of put it into a professional term. But to me, it's also like, yeah, but we're just looking for ways that people can steal money. I mean, at the end of the day, because that is like where our focus is zoomed in. Now, you can have a risk-based approach to any of these other things we talked about. And that's what these like enterprise risk management groups do is to evaluate those things and how do you mitigate it? And like, what's the priority? But also in any type of risk management, you're looking at like, what's the likelihood? So what are those opportunities? And then how do we prioritize the resources we have to mitigate or reduce the risk within these areas? And for us, it's how do we take a client's resources, like whatever problems we're solving for a client, how do we take the resources that are available for solving those problems and prioritize them so that they're getting, like I said earlier, the biggest bang for their buck. And let's talk just a little bit more about the diminishing returns aspect of this. Because a client has all the feelings when they come talk to us, right? And then as part of our case planning process, you know, we try to create some priority. And that's where this uh, risk-based analysis comes into play is to prioritize what is going to, I feel like this might sound a little bad. So we may have to, we can kind of... (laughs) bounce this idea around just on the spot here, but we need to kind of prioritize what are the areas that are going to quantify the largest loss for the client first.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking there's, what's that saying? There's some saying about like, 80% or 20% of the, I feel like it applies to different like management type things. Like whether it's people or um, like how you spend your time, like what your tasks, but like 20% of the tasks provide 80% of the impact or, you know, 20% of the people, whatever. I definitely think, I mean, obviously those are just random numbers, but that concept applies here too. Like often looking at, you know, if we can focus on like 20% of the all the ways that money goes into or out of a business and probably like 80% of the loss is there. You know, are
0: you, is that making sense? <laughs> yeah. I think it makes sense too because the opportunity is in the path of least resistance for right. the subject. So like if I can steal money by just overpaying myself through payroll versus my payables process has like four people involved, but overpaying myself in payroll, like there's nobody stopping. Like I have the ability to in inflate my hours or put extra expense reimbursements or something like that, and no one reviews it. And so between me hitting send, you know, uh, uh, funding it, and then it landing in my bank account, then that would make sense that even though that's only one component, like the majority of the loss is likely there if not all of
1: it. Just makes me think it's so common. And we talk about this in some of our trainings around turning case drama into a case plan. um, And just what clients tend to focus on when they talk to you. It's like everyone wants there to be a conspiracy or like a really elaborate scheme. Like those two things just really capture people's imaginations for some reason. But in reality, like that's probably not your highest risk area. If you're like the average small business, there's probably some process you have that like has a complete lack of internal controls or, you know, was just down to this one person that actually is going to be higher risk. And I think also to your point about we're trying to capture most of the loss with the least, you know, putting the least resources into it. We don't, we haven't really talked about this a lot, but I think the dollar amounts that you're looking at in different areas or different like fraud risks, it's almost like a multiplier. Like you want to look at where were the opportunities for money to be diverted, but also how much money are we talking about? Like if you're looking at a business and you can see, okay, well, there was an opportunity for them to like this person had check writing ability out of the business, but they also had a company credit card that they used. But like, there's only a thousand dollars a month being put on this credit card. Whereas like maybe the checks going out of the business are 10 or 20 or $30,000. I feel like that can be another component of our risk assessment is and sometimes too, it doesn't always align with the client's sense of what's important or like what really a lot of times there's like a certain aspect of the case that just really bothers the client. Like they feel super personally wronged by it or for whatever reason, like they just really want to tell us about that over and over again. So like in this example, maybe it's the credit card, but sometimes we just have to tell them you know, if you want to get the most bang for your buck, we can look at this for you. But that's probably not and it's not that the opportunity wasn't there. But it's not the highest risk in terms of overall dollar amount.
0: Yeah, I'll give a shout out to a previous guest Gary Glanz that we had on the show something that he anytime I would work a case with Gary, and he was talking to the client, he would always say you don't want to take good money and throw it after bad. I feel like that's another way of talking about a risk-based analysis in providing forensic accounting and fraud investigation, Engagements is that that diminishing return comes with okay let's go capture the majority of the loss and then at a certain point for every dollar you're finding you might be spending a hundred I mean yeah not worth it (laughs) it's not worth it at all and um you know and then just kind of a practicality type thing if you end up in civil court or even referring the case to law enforcement law enforcement might decide that all of these like smaller items aren't worth the complexity complexity of explaining it to make it stick so the easy part are these large expense reimbursements or you know it, it, that are clear that somebody stole money as opposed to all of these individual misuse of the credit card but it could have gone either way and and all of that so that's part of that diminishing returns
1: oh yeah that's another good aspect how uh, definitive is it or you know mm-hmm. how how well can you make your case that that was actually fraud right it's probably a component of whether you want to Put a lot of your resources there and then
0: kind of thinking about how much you know because we deal in circumstantial evidence unless we get a con- confession so how much circumstantial evidence do we have supporting portions of this loss versus other portions of the loss you know like how good is that evidence how mm-hmm. strong is that evidence that it clearly didn't benefit the business and it benefited this individual or clearly this person was hiding it. You know, like I kind of think about, this will lend to our episode about a type of data analysis that we do. But like from an evidentiary standpoint, like how many things do we have that just keep indicating this clearly did not benefit the company and this was hidden. And, the you know, all of these like pieces of intent and things like that that can like add up to say, okay, yeah, this is probably our best category of loss to really go after.
1: And that makes me think of another uh, kind of point that I'd make, which is that Sometimes it doesn't – the areas that actually are highest risk for the business are not going to align with the areas where their money is best spent in a fraud investigation because unfortunately the reason it's so high risk is because their record keeping was severely lacking or their controls, you know, all that kind of goes together. Like we've definitely had cases where, yes, we identified this area as being a particularly high risk for them, but unfortunately we weren't actually able to quantify anything because – you know and they could have had to spend time on it really as much as they wanted to spend but it doesn't mean if there's not documentation for that part of the loss it's probably not a good use of their resources and and that i feel like those are so unsatisfying for us and for the client and you just feel bad but really the best thing we can do is say hey we can work with your team to give you some suggestions for the future um how you can minimize this risk but there's kind of nothing that can be done if it's
0: already happened. It's a little bit of a tangent. I'll admit what I'm going to say next. But something I realized, I was giving a presentation for the ACFE um, last week and or a couple weeks ago. And I realized as I was talking that because you mentioned how clients like to think that there's a conspiracy or collusion or something really complicated. And as I was talking, I heard myself say that. Typically, if, because if you think of path of least resistance, so if a business does not have internal controls or very good internal controls or whatever, that's creating this opportunity where someone can just directly, I'm oversimplifying this, but write checks from themselves to their personal bank account. They could use a different scheme or whatever, fine, but that's ultimately at the end of the day. How do I get money out of this company through the path of least resistance that will increase my purchasing power on the other side? So that's how that works. But in a company that has internal controls, that's when conspiracy and collusion are actually most common. Because in order for someone to steal that money to relieve to relieve a pressure or incentive or get money out of the company, you would have to get people on your team to then make that happen. Yeah. And that's just been my experience. I would love to hear from listeners if they've seen opposite, but if running my scheme does not, I, it does not require anyone else to be involved. I have likely not brought anyone else in because that means the risk, if, since we're talking about risk, the risk to the subject is that they're going to be found out more quickly. Mm-hmm. And the whole point is to hide it <laughs> so that you can keep stealing or so that, you know, you don't get in trouble or whatever. I just thought that was a, I don't know, just one of those moments that I just hear myself talking about this and I'm thinking, and I kind of freaked out for a Second, because I thought I haven't thought through this, but I I think, but once I thought through it more, I do think it holds up.
1: You're not going to bring in a co-conspirator unless you need to to get around an internal control.
0: Exactly. Exactly. All right. Within a risk-based analysis, what are the practical steps? or evaluation process in performing this. And specifically, let's start with like at the beginning of an investigation, maybe even pre-case planning, like just when we're talking to the client, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So I was going to say, I think a lot of this happens kind of in those first conversations with the client, definitely just understanding their processes and the information, the records that they have and the information that's available and the controls that were in place. And But at the same time, um, I think the less the client can tell us about what happened, the more important, this risk-based analysis is for them. you know sometimes clients come to us and they kind of already think they see how the scheme worked and you know we always want to cast a wider net just make sure we catch everything but um that can give us a starting point but i feel like it's those times when the client is like i don't know what's happening here but something isn't right you know at the end of the day my bank balance just seems like it's not what it should be then i feel like this is most helpful but yeah i'd say kind of the first step is usually just to really get a handle on what their their processes are um And again, how money came into the business and then how it, or entity, you know, nonprofit, whatever we're looking at, and then how money went out. Because those are really, I think we had a social media post the other day, or maybe it hasn't gone out yet, but it was just kind of a Leah Wheathalter quote of, Uh, you know, money can be stolen coming into your business or going out, but that's it. I mean, like those are the two options, (laughs) which I think is really, I think people often don't think to simplify it to that extent, but it's true.
0: It's true. I mean, it's only the sources and the uses for sure. And I think that I use, whenever I'm meeting with clients, I use this risk-based approach to, for kind of two things. If Like you said, if somebody comes in and they have no idea, they're just like, cash is wrong, I should have more money than I have, then I walk through a risk-based analysis, essentially just by asking them some questions. But then when someone comes in and says, I know that they're stealing through payroll, I know that they're stealing through whatever, I use risk-based analysis to think, to kind of preliminarily validate, just through logic and reasoning, their claims, so if they come in and they said, I know someone is stealing through payroll, and then I start asking those questions related to the subject's access, and then I find out that there's all these other people involved, then I'm going to start asking more questions mm-hmm. and then say, okay, but what other responsibilities do they have? So it's kind of doing like this, pre- I'm really lacking the the word for it, but like this preliminary evaluation of the legitimacy of the client's claims
1: or the their hypothesis like yes is it because it's not always like they're not legitimate you know but they could just be missing a more obvious way to steal
0: right <laughs> and tell me how you know this you know right? and let's see what evidence have you collected and then they start telling me all of these like confusing things so then i ask about okay well what else did they have access to and then i'll say actually i think this is your area of highest risk And maybe we start there. Like, you're right. They very well could be stealing money, but maybe not in the way you think or whatever. So to kind of test, yeah, to test their hypothesis while we're talking. But then also for those that have no idea where it started, like giving them a starting point. And then what would that look like throughout the investigation, a risk-based analysis?
1: We set up our case plan at the beginning, you know, and we use obviously risk-based analysis, risk-based analysis to, uh, inform that. Um, but it's definitely an iterative process. Like as much as we like to, I know, I really love to pretend that like, we're gonna, that there is some ideal way to like, create the most amazing case plan that like it won't have to change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's reality. It,
0: it is an investigation. It's an exploratory process. So
1: Right. That's that yeah, that's a perfect word. It's an exploratory process. So by definition, we don't know everything at the beginning or we wouldn't be doing it. Um so to me it's kind of you're applying that risk-based lens at every step as either we uncover more information or often the client depending on the type of client but there's definitely I feel like just small business owners especially cuz they're so invested in whatever it is but they'll come to us. I'm thinking of someone in particular and I know you know who it is. But like they'll they they're kind of doing their own parallel investigation with ours, you know, not necessarily using the same And it can honestly be really helpful, like, and they're not maybe using the same approaches and whatever that we would, or they wouldn't be paying us. But, you know, they're digging through emails or they're, you know, following up on kind of these other threads. A lot of unstructured data I find, like, we don't tend to use as much, but that's often what they are looking at to be like, ah, here's this, like, note that I found. And so they're bringing that stuff to us throughout the process too. And I think looking at it through that lens of risk can help us assess that additional information as it comes in and say, oh, like, you know, this does relate to a process that I think is an area of risk for you versus like, you know, I get why this is really bothering you, but I don't think you should have us spend more time on that.
0: And then to the- to help them think about, okay, we understand that you found this note, but within the data, we don't have a good way of extracting that. And this would be a really manual process. And so since we've already quantified 3.5 million, you're probably not going to get any of that back. So we can go down this other rapid trail, but that's when you're spending good, good money going after bad. Yes, definitely. Hi everyone, it's Leah. My new book, Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations, launches April 19th. And to celebrate, we're giving away 10 signed copies during each of our April 5th and April 19th episodes. With 20 chances to win, you do not want to miss out. To be sure you're in the drawing, subscribe to the podcast and turn on alerts to be the first to know when the episodes drop. Practically, like these steps, the how to how do we evaluate this risk when we're starting a financial investigation?
1: So, I don't know if we want to plug some of our worksheets and book elements yet, or if we're going to do that later. But, no, go ahead. (laughs) We do have a uh, I'm going to totally blank on the name of the worksheet, which is why I'm terrible at this. But, uh, we have like a, a fraud risk detection kind of worksheet that helps people walk through these kind of things. The types of things we're going to evaluate are well, we kind of split our mindset into money coming in and money going out. So as you have money coming into your business, what are the ways it comes into your business? Do you have people paying you in cash? Do you have people writing you checks? Those kinds of things who touches the money as it comes in? Kind of, you know, what's the process? Who makes deposits to the bank if there are cash or checks? You know, who is responsible for things like customer invoicing and then tracking those payments. And on the cash outside, you know, who can write checks out of your business, who controls your payroll system, if you have payroll. So looking at all the different little avenues that money comes into and goes out of your organization, and then who touches those things, I think are kind of the the most important starting points. And then if we find that there are places where there either aren't inherent controls in it, uh, you know, like cash is something that just like doesn't have a lot. There's very unless you're very intentional about it. I think it's hard to have a lot of control over that. And then looking at just the personnel involved, if it's like only one person, you know, involved in a step, obviously, that's problematic. But that's kind of where we usually start.
0: Yeah. So we have a blog post where we have this download that's the fraud detection worksheet. And we what made it is. It. Yeah, you're good. I While you were talking, I got to look it up, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so there's a blog post where we talk about how to use this spreadsheet and it's available on our website. And we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. If you want to download that, but yeah, identifying where does money come from, and at each of those sources of funds. So it could be sales. It could come from uh, maybe you sublease space. It could come from like manufacturing scrap income, and how are all of these sources of income paid? What are the types of payments you receive, and then who touches it, which you you mentioned, and where? Like, so my technician might connect with the payment on site at somebody's house, like a plumber, but then the, maybe the office manager reconciles these credit card payments or something. So identifying each of those individuals and where they interact or touch the payment. And then, you know, if this is a business owner doing this, then ask yourself if the person was to steal funds, like where would it have happened? And then if the funds were stolen, how would you know? But I think as the investigators like us, those are the two things that we have to answer for ourselves as we're learning this information from the client. I know that's what I do in initial client meetings. I'm thinking, okay, so they've told me this is how this process works. So in each of these processes, could money have been stolen here, here, here? And then I'll run it by them. And, you know, like we just have a whole, this is just part of a conversation. This isn't like a, I don't know, quiz or anything. It's just part of the conversation trying to fill in these blanks because those areas where it could happen is a risk. But then at the same time and connecting it to the data piece, I think is when we as a team, or even sitting in that meeting with the client start thinking, okay, what data sources exist that would confirm or deny that funds were stolen and that's that data piece
1: right that how would you know i was just thinking like and that's where we get into case planning
0: (laughs) that's right (laughs) exactly so and then you know we perform these same steps for as money leaves the business i mean it's exactly the same process and i think most of the time see if you agree based on the cases you've worked i think most of the time more of the risks exist on the money outside.
1: I agree. Cause when I stop to think of examples of diversion of money coming in, like I just struggle to think of them. <laughs> like I think it's so much easier for people to write themselves a check or overpay payroll or, you know, use a company credit card inappropriately. I don't know. I think usually those there are fewer controls around that, it seems like. Um and so it just requires less complexity on the part of the subject to do that.
0: So before we wrap up, I wondered if you had a case story that you remember from something you've worked here that represents this risk-based analysis uh, especially prior to case planning if not throughout.
1: Yeah, so I'm thinking of a case that was pretty interesting and actually ended up being pretty complicated with the data that they had available, but it was a service company of sorts and they had this inspection branch or I forget what exactly they called it, but they had this one department that was overseen by this one guy and It was kind of interesting because the way they ran that department had actually evolved over time, maybe with the ownership not... I think sometimes people can get away with this more when it is like gradual or changes to a process are made over time. It had essentially become a lot less controlled or a lot more of the operations and specifically the payroll of the department had come under the control of this one employee or manager and kind of his right-hand person who he had hired and brought in. Um, I think he had worked with her at a previous employer and they also had several um, service techs or other people in the group. He had kind of started to bring in Of his own people, which is another thing. Like, we don't talk about that often, but I think that in and of itself is kind of a source of risk or a potential red flag when you know the subject has a lot of these like pre existing relationships or relationships that exist outside of your business. That's just kind of another side note related to this case, but basically, the payroll for that group had previously been handled by some kind of payroll clerk, or he had kind of brought it in house within his department and now had this like right hand lady doing payroll. And so all of the timesheets, and they kind of then converted people would fill out their timesheets, and then they converted them to the spreadsheet, but like she controlled that and then she also cut the checks. So that was a big red flag for us that and to the I mean, the client as well to their credit. They were like, we think that overpayment of payroll is what's happening here. But we had a lot of discussions with them. I just remember about what that process looked like and what data sources we were going to compare and kind of the risk factors there. And then the other interesting element of that one was Uh, obviously we're always looking for where money went, but then also what was the uh, benefit if the money didn't obviously just go directly to the subject. So in this case, if they were overpaying a bunch of these texts or whatever, you know, how did that benefit the subject? And so another aspect that he would have been responsible for in this department was the client invoicing and taking in those client payments. And so one thing that we had considered was these apparent overpayments where people are working, but there's no client or client payments or customer payments associated with those hours worked was he also invoicing outside of the system because there weren't really any audits or checks being done of that and he had control over that process too. So that one kind of had two big areas where this guy I think had the potential to be controlling the flow of money basically and it wasn't really being uh, reviewed or reconciled or like no one else was really taking a second look at it.
0: Right and that last risk area you talked about was that he would be charging our client, potentially charging our client for payroll for technicians. So he was either just straight up overpaying them and maybe getting some sort of kickback from the employees themselves, right? Or, which was a risk, or he was, these technicians really were working on jobs, but then he was invoicing from his own system and collecting those client payments. So he was getting 100% of the revenue and then charging the cost, the associated payroll cost to our client.
1: Right. So it's a, it's kind of a, I think this one's just kind of interesting because we we t- were saying how it seems like money out schemes are just generally the most uh, common that we see in the area of greatest risk. But this is in a way kind of both, or you could look at it through either lens, you know, was he overpaying people or was he paying people for work that he did, that they did, but then diverting the income or truly the income was never even like coming into the business or related to the business at all.
0: Right. It was, there was no record of these people working. Right.
1: Of, of those jobs existing right. or whatever.
0: So it was really, really fascinating. Yeah. The data on that one is the most frustrating thing and we won't get into that on this episode. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. And talking about risk-based analysis, I've really enjoyed it. I think that this helps me explain it better, like just having this conversation with you. And so we'll make sure in the show notes to link to the book, of course, our new Data Sleuth book that's available for pre-order on Amazon. And then also we'll make sure to link to the blog post where people can download that fraud detection worksheet. So thank you so much again.
1: Yeah, so glad to be here.
0: (laughs) Hey, everyone, it's Leah. I want to tell you about a project I've been working on that I'm really excited about. Coming in April 2022, the data sleuth process that we use every day when working investigations at Workman Forensics is being made available in my book, Data Sleuth, Using Data in Forensic Accounting Engagements and Fraud Investigations. In it, I share stories from my journey, including building Workman Forensics, as well as case stories. But most of all, I lay out the data sleuth process. It's all in the book from client inquiries, case planning, standard data-driven data sleuth analyses to the final report and testifying. When I started Workman Forensics in 2010, I looked everywhere for a reliable process for financial investigations, but I came up short. So I decided to build one. The data sleuth process came out of my dream to find a work-life balance without diminishing quality work product and made forensic accounting available to more people. After 11 years in the making, I want to share it with you. If you are just starting out, this will give you what I wished I had had back then, a place to start. If you have been doing this for a while and struggle with seasons of burnout, the tools in this book will give you hope. It is possible to have a data-driven approach to financial investigations in a team environment. Pre-orders are available now. Check the show notes for details.
1: Thank you for listening to The Investigation Game. For more information on any of the topics brought up on this show, visit WorkmanForensics.com. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to subscribe
0: and leave a review. You can also connect with us on any social media platform by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions or topic ideas, please email us at podcast at WorkmanForensics.com. Thank you.